0: Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Saturday, April the 22nd, 2023. It is currently 6.20 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Saturday nights. Saturday nights sometimes for me is watching the UFC, which is currently on. I'm missing it. Saturday nights. sometimes I'm watching Supercross, I'm watching motocross, watching motorcycles race. Oh, that's on right now as well. Oh, here I am. Sometimes Saturday nights is watching top-ranked boxing. I don't think that's on this evening, so I'm not missing that. Sometimes Saturday nights are for, I don't know, MLB, NHL hockey playoffs. That's happening tonight. Sometimes Saturday nights are for um, music. I, I, there's always a million things I want to do, but we all know, at least for me... I mean, you should know this. Saturday nights also is a time of a lot of focus on Sunday morning, preparing myself for Sunday morning. So a lot of times I use maybe the early evening hours for a lot of entertainment-based stuff. And then I spend a lot of my late-night hours all the way into Sunday morning. I usually, you know, sleep very little where I really focus in on sermon prep and I do a lot of work there. Um But sometimes... I'm like, you know, I think I need a little extra focus. So I had to pull my way. The UFC main card was just starting. I had to pull myself away from the television. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go upstairs and I know what we're going to do. I'm going to help myself with sermon prep, number one. Number two, I'm going to help people with one of their assignments – for the Bible study exercise. Number three, I'm going to, well, do another broadcast that adds to our study on temptation, which we've been working on for the Bible study exercise. So I'm going to try to do accomplish a number of things in one broadcast. So tomorrow at Victory Baptist Church, the goal is to work on Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew chapter 4. Right? That's what we're doing for the Bible study exercise for this week. Now, now tomorrow we move to Deuteronomy 6 and Matthew chapter 4. But this week has been Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew chapter 4. So I'm, um, so I, you know, I, I, I still need to bring that to some kind of conclusion. And so since I'm going to be working on it tomorrow, I thought, you know what? I gave everyone an assignment to find two sermons on Deuteronomy chapter 8 from the Sermons 2.0 app and find two sermons on the Matthew uh, uh, from the Sermons 2.0 app on Matthew 4 and to listen to those sermons. Well, I thought, you know what? What better way to help me kind of prepare is to just listen to a random sermon on Deuteronomy 8 to see how they handle it, right? It may offer different thoughts, different perspectives, different insight than what I am already thinking, or it may strengthen my perspective going, "Whoa," People are preaching that perspective. I've got to, I'm going to take a stronger stand against it. Whatever. Also, I'll be helping people participating in the Bible study exercise and it will just give me something to think about that's more spiritual than watching people fight in the UFC. So here I am. I'm in the studio. I hope you're ready. We're going to review a sermon. All right. Now I had someone else pick out the sermon. So, um, We'll see how well it goes. We'll see how well it goes. But remember, when we do sermon reviews, let's remember a couple of rules. Rule number one, I don't listen to it in advance. Why do I not listen to it in advance? Because if I was to listen to it in advance, then this would come across as rehearsed. It would come across as prepared. It would almost come across as a performance. Ooh, this is really bad. Now I get to talk about it. No, we we don't do that because I really look at the sermon reviews as just I'm getting ready to listen to a sermon why listen to it by myself when I can turn on the microphone and listen to it with people all around the world, and then we can just analyze it, critique it, learn from it, be challenged by it, be confused by it? We never know what's going to happen, so it makes it more fun. It makes it more, hopefully, beneficial. Sometimes it's challenging for me because I don't really know where anything is going. So sometimes I'll make a statement, and then five minutes later in the sermon, they'll say something that, well, I, I didn't need to make that statement in the first place, But because I don't really know where something is going. but it makes it a lot of fun. I think somewhat, I hope it's beneficial. But for me, for tonight, this really is, I I just need to hear some more discussion on Deuteronomy chapter 8. I've got my thinking on it. So really, yes, this is for the Bible study exercise. Yes, this is to help you with the assignment because you're supposed to be listening to two sermons from the Sermons 2.0 app on Deuteronomy chapter 8. This comes from the Sermons 2.0 app. It's randomly chosen. So it, it's going to help you with your homework. But um, I, just, I just need to hear some discussion on Deuteronomy 8. And I don't know which direction they're going to go. So are you ready? Now, uh, the only thing I have not done here is I have amplified the audio, but I haven't tested it to see how loud it is. So if for some reason we start this, and it, I hope it's loud enough. I hope it's loud enough. I know when I first, I did hit play for just a second on the, as soon as I downloaded the audio and I immediately realized this is way too quiet. I don't know who recorded it. They, they obviously didn't want anyone to hear it. So I had to take it uh, into a, a software uh, program and massively amplify it. So, um, I, I don't, I so still, I, I, I don't think I amplified it enough. And I thought, look, it, this is crazy how loud I've got this thing, but, um, hopefully it will be loud enough. So just be prepared for that. There probably will be a major fluctuation between the audio we're reviewing and my voice. I'll try to remember when I come back in. I don't come back in screaming at you. I will try to remember that. But are, does it sound like a good thing? Do you, are you, do you, I hope you think it's a good idea. I, I, I put it this way, even if no one's listening, it's going to be beneficial to me. All right. I got a Bible here, open to Deuteronomy. I got a journal right here. I got a pencil. And I know you, you may not believe this, but literally, I mean, I'm just listening to this with you. I'm going to be taking notes. I'm going to be trying to figure it out. And uh, who knows? I don't, I don't know which direction it's going to go, but are you ready? Deuteronomy chapter eight. Now, just so that you remember, for those, because we always have new people tuning in. A lot of times I just start explaining something as if all the people listening know, know exactly what's going on. I always try to make sure everyone is caught up. Just remember Deuteronomy chapter eight, we've connected it to Matthew chapter four per the curriculum. And we've been using Deuteronomy eight and Matthew four, obviously to study the subject of temptation, because that's what we've been working on. So our approach is really looking at Deuteronomy eight more in light of the subject of temptation. Someone who's not involved in a study of temptation, are they going to look at Deuteronomy 8 being about temptation? Are they going to remove the word temptation completely from the sermon and it will never be mentioned? That Now, that to me is kind of an interesting perspective, like should be the curriculum that we're using for our Bible study exercise for seven weeks on the subject of temptation. They led us to Deuteronomy 8 and said, hey, Understand this in light of about temptation, but if you weren't studying temptation and you read Deuteronomy eight, would you see temptation in it? That's really an interesting question. Like if if you were if if we were hanging out on a Saturday evening, let's say you were here in the studio, and I'm like, hey, grab your Bible, let's read Deuteronomy eight. And when I was done, I'm like, hey, what do you think Deuteronomy eight is about? Ooh, Deuteronomy eight is about. Israel being tempted, or would you like, whoa, Deuteronomy 8 is about Israel facing trials and difficulties. Like, which way would you read it? Because again, what we have discussed over and over in this series so far is that most preachers and pastors and many Christians, I don't know if I can say most, a lot, let's say, have a, they really try to draw like a major distinction between a temptation and a trial, Like they want to make them different, but remember the Greek word for temptation, the Greek word translated temptation in James 1, and it has three parts, enticement to evil, trial, and testing. And I think temptation involves all three. So we'll see which direction they have a tendency to go. But I just want to remind you, if I start talking about Deuteronomy 8, in regards to temptation, and the sermon is going a completely different direction, I'm not going to immediately criticize them for that because we've kind of entered into our study with kind of a presupposition. We're studying temptation. Here are the texts about it. And we've just assumed that those texts are about temptation. I'm not saying they're not, I, clearly, James one was that's the first text we looked at, and then this week, second week in our study, Deuteronomy eight. Clearly, Matthew four is about temptation. So, how do how should we understand Deuteronomy chapter eight? That's what we're going to find out here. Now, I don't know how far we're going to get, but we're going to do our best. I'm sorry, I keep moving away from the microphone. I was looking at uh, the time here. All right, are you ready? I don't. I would like to. Uh, this is the sermon we're going to be reviewing. I'm going to move the mic with me it's 51 minutes and 37 seconds. The the mac is far away from me so I have to keep leaning away from the mic to to look at the uh mac. Um 51 minutes. So there's no way we're going to get this reviewed in one message which huh. That, I don't know. Maybe we'll just go long. Who knows? Now, there's no way we'll be able to finish it. But we're just going to go and I, maybe we'll do a part. I, I, we'll finish the review. We'll just, we'll just see. You know, we'll just, We're will just we just going to dive in this tonight and see what we discover. You ready? So here we go. I got volume cranked. I got volume cranked. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're going to review this and we're going to do that starting right Now.
1: Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, more than anything else in all the world, my desire is to be victorious in the Christian life. Matter of fact, I'm not making plans to live any other way. I am not making plans to live any other way but victorious in the Christian life. But if I'm going to do that.
0: All right. Now we're off to a very interesting start. In fact, I'm going to rewind this all the way. All right. Good. Someone said they can hear it fine. Thank you very much. I was already checking uh, as well. So, I, yeah, I think it's I think it's plenty loud enough. All right. I, okay. I'm immediately, immediately I'm struck by this. All right. And I got so, I got so many questions. I got, I got so many questions here or now so many well yeah i got so many thoughts i should say he says his desire is to live a victorious christian life that's his desire he's he's not he doesn't want anything else he wants to live a victorious christian life now look i and no don't please no one misinterpret what i'm about to say right because look I want to live a victorious Christian life. I think any Christian wants to live a victorious Christian life. But, but I have to raise this question. What is a victorious Christian life? What is a victorious Christian life? I mean, honestly, what, what do you consider a victorious Christian life? I mean, like, like, because you know, look, you're, go- look, I'm just going to go through these again. I know I see these in, pod, in podcast episode after podcast episode after podcast episode. And I know some of you are tired of hearing them, but I have to keep bringing them up because there's it's actual scripture, right? So let me ask you, is it a victorious Christian life? If in your Christian life, you have never truly loved the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, even though that's actually commanded, Is that a victorious Christian life if you've never truly loved God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul? Is it a victorious Christian life if you've never truly and consistently and persistently loved your neighbor as yourself, not just externally, but internally? Is it a victorious Christian life if you have never been as holy as God is holy because you're commanded to be as holy as he is holy? Is it a victorious Christian life if you've never truly offered yourself up as a living sacrifice? Now, you may claim that you've done all of those things, but I think if you claim to have loved God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, love your neighbor as yourself, been holy as God is holy, and offered yourself up as a living sacrifice, then you've got bigger problems because clearly you're living in a land of denial and you're lying, so so if you never accomplish those things in any meaningful way, internally, externally, persistently, whatever words you want to use, exactly, entirely, uh, we, we've talked about all of the different ways to describe our obedience. If you never do that, is that, an, is that a victorious Christian life? Or are you saying, I've lived a victorious Christian life because I never committed the sin of homosexuality? I never murdered anyone. I never got drunk. I never did drugs. I never slept with a prostitute. Like, does do you get to pat yourself on the back and go, I have lived in spiritual victory. But why, how many sins have you committed in your mind? How many sins have you committed with your lust? How many sins? I, it is I think it's a wonderful thing that we all want to live a victorious Christian life. But exactly what does that mean? Here's one thing I can know. I, I don't even know if there's a good answer there, right? Because I, th- I think a lot of Christians brag about that them li- they've lived a victorious Christian life. But I, I think that they're, they're it's the game is rigged. You, you get to kind of define what you think victory looks like. Here's what I do know. In Christ, I am victorious. In Christ, I am sinless. I am perfect, I am holy, I am righteous. So I have lived a victorious Christian life, but I get no credit for that victorious Christian life because I am living a victorious life through and in the victory of Jesus Christ, who defeated sin, the devil, the grave, etc. In Christ, I'm victorious. In myself, I'm a complete and total dumpster fire. I'm a complete and total failure. I, I truly I truly know we want to, at least I, I think most Christians can say they want to live a victorious life. But I think we have to kind of modify what victory is. What is victory? So let's go back and listen to this again.
1: Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, more than anything else in all the world, my desire is to be victorious in the Christian life. Matter of fact, I'm not making plans to live any other way.
0: Now, I I would be curious. Can you honestly say tonight that more than anything else in life, that there is no other desire stronger in your life than to live a victorious Christian life? That is what you desire the most. I don't know if I could honestly stand behind a pulpit and ever say that. Ladies and gentlemen, what I desire more than anything else, I'm sorry if I hit the microphone, what I desire more than anything else is to live the Christian life, to live a victorious Christian life, and I'm not planning to do anything else. I don't know if I could ever say that. What I desire more, I can preach that. I don't know if I can mean that. I could say that. I don't know if I can mean that. I don't know if I could. I, I look, you can you can stand and you judge me and you can you can say, man, he's got all kinds of problems. I just don't know. I don't know if that's what I desire more than anything else. I mean, I've got lots of desires. I don't I don't know. I don't know. You you tell me, you tell me. You tell me. All right. you tell me. Dropping my pencil. Here we go.
1: I am not making plans to live any other way but victorious in the Christian life. But if I'm going to do that, and if you're going to do that, there are some things that we need to learn. And one of the hardest lessons possible, possibly, comes from the subject that we're going to deal with today. And that is the subject of adversity.
0: All right. So to live... A victorious Christian life, we have to know some things. And specifically, we have to know things about adversity. Now, if we're in Deuteronomy chapter 8, I've got to ask this question. I've got to ask this question, right? Like, this is just me thinking, right? I don't know where he's taking this sermon, but this is just my mind. Remember, I'm reacting in real time, all right? So let me ask you, if we're going to talk about being victorious in the Christian life, and we're going to go to Deuteronomy, we're going to be dealing with Israel. Just ask yourself, how victorious were they ever? The gener- just think of all the people who died, who came out of Egypt. They come out of Egypt, they're delivered and you have an entire generation who dies off, right? How many who died during that time? There's much speculation and how many, a lot of people died. I don't know if you count that as victorious. The next generation comes up and they get to go into the promised land. But are they victorious? As soon as you get into Judges, you find out they didn't drive these people out. They didn't drive these people out. They didn't drive these people out. Then they, they almost instantaneously in Judges, I think by chapter 2 or chapter 3, Israel's being rebuked. I mean, when you, when you get into Judges or you get into Joshua, I mean, Israel sins or at least one individual sins that impacts the whole camp, but their sin that is even recorded in Joshua. By the time you get into Judges, it's a it's an absolute spiritual anarchy, chaos, sin, 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 rebellion, rebellion, rebellion. And they never drive out all the people they were supposed to. It's failure. Then as you move poor, as you move through judges, whether well, you're going to ultimately end up in kings where they're like, nope, we want a king like all the other nations. Then they end up with all these wicked kings. Then you know what happens. Northern kingdom goes into Assyrian captivity. Boom, they're gone. Southern kingdom disobeys. They go into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Finally, they come out out of Babylonian captivity. You're like, ooh, things are going good. But then they're lazy and they're not really rebuilding the temple. So God has to send prophets. They finally get the temple rebuilt. And then before you know it, you open up your New Testament. And where are they? They're under control of Rome. And then next thing you know, 70 AD, they get whopped off the face of the planet. So I dare say, if you're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter eight, the people that's being addressed there did they ever have true victory? And if they never had victory, are you saying that we can gain from them the path to victory and we can? Again, what is victory? What does victory in the Christian life really, truly look like? How would you define it? I I mean, if you were, if I, if I was just to say, you know what? We're not going to do anything else in this review. We're going to stop right here because once again, this just demonstrates I only need about a minute or two of our sermon and I, I, I've got, I got enough spiritual food to last me for a hundred years. I don't need anything. I, I, I always try to demonstrate this, right? This is my whole thing about there not being a, there being a famine in the land. Look, I don't need, I don't need any more of this sermon. I don't. Hey, this sermon could be the worst sermon in the world i got I've, I've got plenty right here because now I could spend the rest of this night going how would I define spiritual victory so if I was to stop this review right now and said here's what I want you to do for homework I want you to take a piece of paper and I want you to write one paragraph describing spiritual live, a, a victorious Christian life what define what is a victorious Christian life what would it look like what would it look like and is the answer to that victorious Christian life found in Deuteronomy chapter 8, considering the people who receive these instructions, fail and fail and fail and fail and fail over and over and over? Israel is the textbook example of people who are given every spiritual benefit you can imagine. The actual physical manifestation of God's presence in the Shekinah glory, they've got God's revelation, they've got priests, they've got prophets, they've got scripture, they've got commandments, they've got God himself, they've got sacrifices, and it's spiritual failure after spiritual failure after spiritual failure after spiritual failure after spiritual spiritual failure. I mean, by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, you should basically throw up your hands and like, man, we're man, the whole Bible is filled with a bunch of people who can't do anything right. And then you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, neither can I. And like, well, so what's the answer? <gasps> oh, a little baby born in Bethlehem, who's going to save his people from their sins, not by making them better, but by, declare, but by declaring them perfect, by imputing a righteousness to them. So his victory in the Christian life found in my position, not in my practice? Let's see what he has to say.
1: Until a child of God learns to deal with adversity, he will be a confused child of God. And I really believe this morning, now listen to me, that if you knew why you were having adversity, and many of us are, some of us financial adversity, some of us health issues, some of us family and relational issues, whatever the case may be, I believe if you knew why you were having adversity, you might not want that adversity to be taken away from you.
0: Okay. If you knew why you're facing adversity, you may not want that adversity taken away from you. Now, look, I have to do this. I have to do this. All right. So there's a woman. Let's say she lives in New Jersey. And she is in a situation where she's being beaten and raped over over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Would you call that adversity? Now, if she knew the reason why she was in a situation where she was being beaten and raped, would she be like, don't take this adversity away from me? Let's say there's a child. Teenager. Let's say he lives in Texas. And he finds himself tied up in a closet, burned with curling irons, beat with an electric cord. If he knew why he was suffering that adversity, he may not want it taken from him. Let's say there's a child who's being molested. If he knew why he was facing that adversity, he may not want that taken from him. Let's say there's a 24-year-old who's in... Fort Worth or Dallas and a cancer hospital, and he's suffering terminal cancer. That is horrific. If he knew why he was suffering that adversity, he may not want it. Is, is that, is that really, is, I mean, I mean, when you're sitting in a, when you're sitting in a church on a Sunday saying, Hey guys, if you knew why you faced this adversity, you may not want it taken from you. That's a good, that's good on, in theory. I don't know how good that is in practice. Cause there's some people go through some horrible things in their lives. Let's see how he's going to answer this. What's the reason you're going through this? And does that, does that make it all better? Now going through that, let me ask you a question. Is that a temptation? I, obviously, it's a temptation. You're going through things like that. You're going to be enticed to not think, speak, desire, feel, and do that which is consistent with God's word. You're going to want to do, think, say, feel uh, things that are completely opposite to God's word. You know that. I know that.
1: Turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8. Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse number 1. Now, we live in a generation where so many pulpits across America are teaching people five easy steps on how to get yourself out of trouble. Maybe three steps to balancing your checkbook will be preached this morning from a pulpit somewhere in America. It wouldn't surprise me. Maybe four steps on how to have financial success or how to have marital success and all of these different success sermons that are going on today. Ladies and gentlemen, I've just gotten to the point where I am sick of it. Because as I look at the Word of God, uh, I find that so often the the issues that are the sermons that people are preaching today just aren't biblical, and just fly in the face of the will of God for most of our life, most of our lives. And so I want us to look at it today. I want you to just think about adversity. Now in this chapter, Israel was encamped in the Central Rift Valley to the east of the Jordan River, just across from the city of Jericho. The location is referred to in Numbers 36 as the Plains of Moab. And here, this book, the book of Deuteronomy, the majority of it is comprised of farewell speeches by the 120-year-old Moses that he gave to Israel 40 years after they had escaped from Egypt.
0: Please note, 40 years after, because for 40 years they walked around in a big circle so people could die, 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 because clearly they weren't victorious.
1: These speeches can be dated from January to February of 1405 B.C beginning on the first day of the eleventh month of the fortieth year after the exodus from Egypt, according to chapter 1, verse 3. So this was literally the last few weeks of Moses' life. And he committed these speeches to writing and gave them to the priests and the elders for the coming generations of Israel. Now, Moses was preaching to all the people, to all these people whose parents had failed to cross over the Jordan River 40 years ago because of unbelief and fear. This is his audience. Think about it now. You need to understand the context. Everyone in his audience, except for Joshua and Caleb, were people whose parents had failed to cross the Jordan River 40 years ago because of unbelief and fear. And so he was listening to them. Now, they had failed to listen to the report of Joshua and Caleb, and as you remember, listen to the ten spies, the other ten spies who were afraid of the giants in the land. Now, out of this group, out of this generation that he was preaching, there's basically three age groups of people. Joshua and Caleb were were two men uh, that were older than 60 years old. They, They were the only two men that were older than 60. They were the only, what we might call, senior adults in the whole group. And then there were those who were from 40 to 60 years of age who had been born in Egypt and then participated as children and teenagers in the Exodus. They were about 40 to 60 years old. And then there was a large group that were under the age of 40 who had literally been born in the wilderness. They were what some may call desert babies. They had been born in the wilderness. They had never known anything but the wilderness wanderings. Now, this generation was facing the same challenge that defeated their now dead parents. You need to understand that. The exact same challenge that had defeated their dead parents, they were facing. And God was about to change their life forever. They were about to go from wandering... To war. They were about to go from living in tents to building cities. They were about to go from eating manna that fell from heaven to tilling the land and planting crops. And to top it all off, their faithful and God-fearing leader Moses was about to die. Now the book of Deuteronomy reaffirms the provisions of God all that God had done for them, but also it reaffirmed the responsibility of God's children to trust Him, even through the valleys of adversity. Moses was trying to impress on the hearts of the younger generation a deeper sense of dependence on God and obligation to God.
0: So question, could you define the victorious Christian life as a life that is completely and fully dependent upon God to provide for you, to provide the righteousness and the obedience that you lack. Like if, if this is about, remember, he started off by introducing the concept of vi- living a victorious Christian life. If this chapter is to define hey, it, is to show you, hey, you need to trust me. You need to rely on me. Don't trust in yourself. Rely on me. Well, then if I t- if transfer that over to the Christian life, well, then what do I need to do to live a victorious Christian life? Trust and rely on God. Well, what do I need to trust and rely on God for? Well, first and foremost, his righteousness and his obedience, because I don't have the righteousness and I don't have the obedience that his law demands. That would be the first place you need to retrust in him alone and not in yourself. Just a thought.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, we are to serve God with a whole heart. There is no ground for compromise.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, we are to serve God with our whole hearts. Has anyone ever done that? Jesus, you could argue, served the Father with his whole heart. That's why he, because he obeyed everything the law demands. Have you ever served God with your whole heart? Come on. With your whole heart, have you ever, for even a day, served God with your whole heart? See, but it's just spoken of as like, you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. Why don't you do it? I don't, I don't think I can ever serve God with a whole heart because my whole heart still has a sinful nature. Right? Inside me, there's still a sinful nature.
1: even in extenuating circumstances. So this book is a book of renewal. It is a book of revival. It may be the reason why it is one of the Old Testament books quoted most often by the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles. This book in the New Testament is quoted over 80 times. And what I wish to share with you today, I believe is one of the most important truths, and yet the most difficult truths for people to understand. And if you could ever get your heart to embrace these truths today, I believe you will forever view adversity and troubles and problems differently. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse number 1. All the commandments that I am commanding you today you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which your Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these forty years, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry. And fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your feet swell these forty years. Thus you are not to know, thus you are, excuse me, to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you, just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in the ways, in His ways, and to fear Him. We'll stop there for now. Beloved, let me share with you this morning one truth before we delve into the exposition of this passage that has comforted my heart. And it has comforted my heart in the last few weeks and even in the last few months with some of the adversity that I have faced. And it is this. Listen to this truth. You may want to write it down. And that is this. There is no adversity that touches your life that God does not allow, that God does not permit, and that God does not limit. There is no adversity that shall touch your life that God does not allow, that God does not permit, and God does not limit.
0: Okay, I want you to write that down. There is no adversity that God does not allow, permit, or limit. There is no adversity that will ever come into your life that God does not allow, allow permit, or limit, all right? So if someone else can write that down, because I just scribbled it in my handwriting, which looks like ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, and I probably won't remember what I wrote down. So if someone can write this down, because I want this, this truth from this sermon, there is no adversity that God does not allow, permit, or limit, I just want you to stop and think about this. I just want you to stop and think about this, all right? Let's go back to some of my previous illustrations, right? There's a woman in New Jersey in a horrible situation being beaten and raped on a regular basis. God allows it, God permits it, and God limits it. There's a child being tied up in a closet, beat with uh, electric cords, burned with curling irons. God allows it. God permits it God limits it there's a there's a 20 year old something in Dallas Fort Worth area and I, I'm just using I'm using hypothetical examples I'm not using real examples because obviously if I knew about these examples currently happening I'd be contacting the police I would not be doing a live broadcast so obviously stay with me here right there's a person in a cancer ward right terminal cancer suffering horribly God allows it God permits it God limits it And if you understand that, your whole perspective will change on adversity. It's going to make it all And I guess this is the key to victory. Now, I'm not denying this truth. Please hear me. What I'm trying to do is for make sure Christians say it like it's like, oh, this is the greatest news ever. The greatest news ever. The reason it's on Friday night at two in the morning, you got that phone call that they just found your teenager on the side of the road dead because they'd been hit by a drug driver. Hey, 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 hey. God permitted it. God allowed it. God limited it. Okay. All right. Well, um, oh, well. Well, uh. So I just want to make sure we, 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 like, it's easy to say the principle. It's, it's something else to take that principle and apply it to horrific situations. Your child is killed in a school shooting. You ever been to a cancer, a children's cancer ward where there's children there? Possible, probably never get their first kiss, probably never go on a date. Never go to prom. Never graduate from high school. All those things that people talk about. And they're, they're, no, they're because they're like literally dying of a horrible terminal disease, and they're sitting there day after day going through all the treatment and suffer, 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 suffer. suffer. Their life is basically a life of suffering. God allows it, and he, and and please note, He limits it. So that means there that He's He's limit. It could have been worse, but He's supposedly limiting it. Now, if he's limiting it, you'd think, well, I wish he would limit, I don't know, the child not suffering, but he's allowed it. He permitted it. He's limiting it, meaning he's in control of the situation. I'm not saying it's not, I'm not, I'm not making an argument about that, that perspective not being true. I make, what I'm trying to do is to make us really hear ourselves say it to really make, hear ourselves say, say see, when we add some of these, and I'm not making these like crazy hypothetical situations. I've described situations that are about as real as real can be. They're not made up. They're not fictional. Those things are happening right now as I'm speaking. How many people die every year from starvation on this planet? Die because of a lack of clean drinking water. How many people are Murdered, how many children are molested? How many women are raped? I mean, let's just go on and on and on and on and on and on and on.
1: You see, some believe that one day God works in your life, and then the next day, Satan counters. God works, and then Satan counterworks, like a chess game, like a competition as if God is constantly acting and reacting to Satan's schemes in our life. Listen to me, friend. That is just not so. Can I get an amen? In fact, that is heresy. That thought, that theology is heresy. It flies in the face of all the attributes of God and His Godness. And it is this false understanding of reality that I believe feeds to the despair of so many when they walk in the deserts of trouble. God is not counteracting to Satan. God and Satan are not on equal planes working some chess game in your life. You see, Moses had a better understanding of God. In fact, before he wrote Deuteronomy, he had already wrote for us another great book to teach us about adversity. And that's the book of Job. He had recorded for us by the inspiration of God this wonderful story of a man who was living for God. He was upright and perfect, God said, and yet adversity came upon him.
0: Now I gotta stop right here. I don't know what is wonderful about the story of Job. I would never call that a wonderful story. It's absolutely horrific. It's absolutely mind-melting, disturbing. It, it is so just what in the, I don't know how Christians read it and go, it is a beautiful story. The man's, he was tortured. His family died. But it's a wonderful story. The only thing I, the only thing I find somewhat—I I, I wouldn't even use the word wonderful. The only thing, I the truth I find out of it is, he suffered and he never got an answer, just like we suffered and we never get an suffering was not explained other than, well, God used Job to. Prove a point. <laughs> I, I, like, you anyway, say, well, no, no, he did it for Job's good. He killed his kids for Job's benefit? Okay, well, that's, that's, uh, I think he could have found a different way to benefit Job, don't you? I, I, I mean, I'm just guessing.
1: Satan buffeted him. Satan oppressed Job. And you know the story. Let me ask you a question, though the story of Job, who brought up Job's name first? Was it God or Satan? God did. God brought up Job's name. Kind of makes you want to say, God, I'd appreciate it if you never brought up my name. Amen? <laughs> Wasn't it Satan that said, God, have you considered this man Job? No, it was God who said to Satan, have you considered my servant, Job? God, listen friend, allowed Satan to buffet Job. See, I believe you can tell whether or not you believe and trust God and believe the statement that I made about adversity and God's sovereignty in it. By listening to the way or to whom people blame for their adversity. Do you ever listen to someone get in trouble? Have you ever listen to someone in the midst of adversity? Listen to who they blame. Who do you blame? Do you blame your spouse? Do you blame your children? Do you blame your friends? Some blame the devil. Listen, friend, Satan can do nothing. Nothing. Unless God allows him. God gave him God gave him not only not only did he allow him, but God gave him permission. I want you to think about that for a minute. God wasn't just there saying, saying, I'm going to allow Satan to do what he wants. God gave him permission to do it. He had a permission slip from God to do whatever he wanted to Job, except for that which God limited him. When Satan came...
0: Now, I absolutely love the fact... That he's making, it's God who's in charge of all of this. Like, I love the honesty that God is in charge of all of this. I don't know if he's realizing all of the major philosophical issues that come into play. Because if God is directly in charge of all of it, and all of the trials, and all of the adversity, well, as a part of temptation, then you've got to figure out how is God, then God is once again involved in our temptation in some way, shape, or form. I said, well, no, God's not the one tempting. He's just like, here's the trial. The trial does the tempting. Therefore, but so God brings the trial, orchestrates the trial, controls, allows, permits and limits the trial, but it's not God doing the tempting. He knows that trial is going to be a source of temptation, but God is not tempting because he's using a secondary cause. I understand that supposedly makes Christians feel better, but it's God, the one directing it. No. And he knows what's going to happen. He knows, hey, I'm going to bring this trial, and you're not going to think, act, speak, desire, feel in a way that's consistent with God's word, but I'm going to bring this trial anyway. But hey, God's not the one doing the tempting. The trial's doing the tempting, but God's the one controlling it, allowing it, and decreeing it. it it's such a oh, it's such a difficult concept, but let, let's see where he goes with this.
1: ...to Job. Satan began to buffet Job. Satan began to oppress Job. Satan began to do all the things that he wanted to, but God did, though He allowed him and though He permitted him, God did limit him and said to Satan, Only thus far and no further. You know, some get focused on Satan in the midst of their problems so often. They, 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 they get focused on the delivery boy. That's what I like to call him. Do you realize Satan's just a delivery boy? God's the editor of this thing. Amen? God's the one in charge. There's only one sovereign. When Satan comes into your life, he's nothing but the delivery boy. He's got his permission slip. He's got his, he's got his allowance. He's got what he can do, but he's been limited. He's not in charge of the adversity. I know some people are saying, I don't know if I believe that. Why would God allow such things? Why would God permit such things? There's many today that don't believe that. I, I, I was thinking, i talking to someone the other day, so many people are getting caught up in this Neil Anderson theology. This guy that wrote all these books on uh, binding Satan. On praying. Uh, this this is the guy that's, that goes around I and mean, he sees a demon behind every bush behind every chair, have you do prayer walks down your street and bind Satan off of your street, bind Satan off of your zip code and your address. I don't see that in Scripture. Amen? There's no telling how many thousands of people will bind Satan this morning before they preach their sermon. But for some reason, that dude keeps getting loose. Amen? It's it's making a mockery out of the Word of God. And it's because we in our humanity desire to focus on the delivery boy because it's so it's so intriguing to our minds. It's sensational to us to think.
0: Okay, I'm somewhat baffled that we really haven't done anything with Deuteronomy 8, but I'm assuming we're going to get to Deuteronomy 8. All right. I'm assuming I'm hoping. But I would argue it's the reason we focus on Satan, the reason we focus on these other things, quote unquote, we focus on the delivery boy, because there's a philosophical reason people are trying to get God off the hook. Like, like I, and I look, I completely agree that focusing on Satan is wrong and it's heretical. I completely agree blaming Satan for it. No, God is the one in charge. There's only one sovereign. We are in complete agreement, but I disagree that people are focusing on Satan for the sensationalism. I think they're focusing on the saying because it gets God off the hook somehow. Because do you want to say, hey, look, lady who's being beaten and raped, hey, God's permitting it, God's allowing it, but God's limiting it, so be grateful because, I mean, it could be worse. Hey, you're suffering a terminal cancer. Hey, 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 God's permitting it. God's allowing it. God's limiting it. Hey, you're being tied up and beaten by your parents. Hey, You're being molested. Hey, hey, God's permitting it. God's allowing it. God's limiting it or allowing it, permitting it and limiting it. I think that's the order he used. Don't blame Satan. Okay, don't blame Satan. Then speak to God. Well, immediately you can see where the temptation is going to come into play, right? Right? Now there's gonna be a temptation. Because now, how do you respond to that? How do you respond to the one? I mean, just think, I mean, look, there's there's no other way to get around this, okay? I, I got I got my journal here. I'm just gonna use my journal for the sound effect, right? So so here, here you are, right? The person in and, and a roundabout way. You can I know we can use secondary causes to get God off the hook the way the London Baptist confession, because it makes everyone feel better, okay. But but here's Here's God, right? So here's the temptation. It's the journal, right? So we got to get it out of God's hands because, you know, we, he can't be accused of being the one doing the tempting, right? Here's God. So here's the trial. Boom! Smacks you in the face and you're like, oh, well, God's the one who did that to me. But hey, 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 that's good, right? That's good. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Now, how do you see it as a good thing? How do you count it all joy? How do you see it as a positive thing? I mentioned count it all joy in our James 1 study, right? And I was I was waiting for someone to bring. Sometimes I throw things out there waiting for someone to say something, begging, pleading, and then I get I get silence. Or even if I church and people just look at me, I'm like, oh, someone say it because someone should, but wait a minute. If we count. It all joy when we fall into diverse temptations. And the word temptation here includes trial. And trial includes all of these horrible things that happen to people. How do they count that all joy? Well, because of the spiritual benefit that supposedly comes from it. So how do I see spiritual benefit in being tied up and beaten in a closet, burned by a curling iron, whipped with an electric cord? How do I see spiritual benefit from being abused, molested, raped, How do I see the spiritual benefit from dying of cancer?
1: Think about demonology. But ladies and gentlemen, if we're to ever understand our adversity, we must understand who's in charge. Amen. Now, we're not saying that God does evil things. We're not saying that God uh, does things that, that... Uh, are are against his character but he will allow Satan to do those things.
0: See the subtle game we play? God's not doing it. He allows Satan to do it. And if he allows Satan to do it, then God's off the hook. I know that makes Christians feel better. I, I look, I truly understand. It makes you feel better. See, so you see it's God's not doing it. See, Satan did it. So, but who created Satan? God, who could have destroyed Satan? God, who allows Satan to do it? God. I, I don't like, I don't know. Like who's the one in control of it? God. Who's limiting it? God. Who? So whatever you're suffering, God's allowed all the way up to that point of suffering.
1: And we've just got to come to grips with that if we're ever going to understand why. By the way, I thank God for His limits. I thank God that when God looses Satan, <laughs> that He does give him a limit. I'm thankful that there's limits in my life. But I have noticed that my limits are a lot further than what i thought
0: Someone just asked a great question. I'm going to turn the microphone over here near the computer. Is Satan involved in all adversity or can it occur out without, without Satan's influence? That's a great question. I will argue It can happen without Satan's influence. I I think it can. Because one, we live in a fallen world. We live in a cursed world, right? Storms, disease, plague, earthquakes, typhoons, all of that. That just is because we live in a fallen world, right? So we live in a fallen world. Also, we live in a fallen world, so you have sinful people. So murder, rape, kidnapping, all that. We have corrupted bodies. So cancer. So all of these things can just play out because we live in a fallen world. Now, so Satan does not have to be directly involved for many of those things to happen. But obviously, sometimes God allows Satan to do something. So I don't, for me, I don't ever try to figure out, is this Satan or is this, like, I just know that there's adversity. I don't try to figure out, is Satan behind it, not behind it, because I'm not given a I don't have a, you know, a detector. I don't have a, an app on my phone going, dee, 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 dee. Satan, 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 Satan. I just know adversity, 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 adversity. So whether so, I don't think we can say Satan is always involved. So that's a very good question. Um, but I, I, you know, there's no, we just live in, the, the world that we live in is just ready and more than willing to cause as much adversity in your life and in my life as possible. Not only the own adversity that we cause in our own life. And not only that, we have our own sinful nature, which leads us into adversity or creates adversity for ourselves. Now, you could say, well, Satan is involved in all of it, but he, again, what and whatever Satan is involved or not involved, God's, allow- God's God allows it, permits it, limits it, and God's the one who created Satan in the first place. So yeah, it's just, I, no matter how far you take it back, you're going to end up with in the beginning God. You're going to end up right back on, uh, in a sense, God's doorstep. That's where you're going to end up. But um I don't think Satan is always directly involved. I I think, no. Well, one, he can't be, he he can't be directly involved just from a logical perspective. He's not omnipresent. So he can't be everyone suffering. Satan is right there impacting it directly because he can only be in one place at one time. He's not omnipresent. Only God can. So he's limited by his own ability to be, be there and direct it and control it.
1: That God will let things and adversity go in my life farther than I thought I could ever possibly go. Because God always uses adversity to get me beyond the realm of my ability to fix it. So that I've only got one option to trust Him. Moses knew about Job. Before.
0: Now, That's a good way of saying it. I I guess God uses adversity to get me past my um, ability to handle it or control it so that I will rely on him. But you can rely on him and still die of cancer. You can rely on him and still be killed by your ex-husband. You can rely on him and still be murdered by your parents. You can rely on him and be molested and molested and molested and molested. And and the one who molested you goes free. Uh, I mean, like, so just because you say you're relying on him doesn't mean that your situation is going to get better or adversity is going to stop, or it doesn't actually kill you. I think we have to at least, allow, we have to bring that into the equation as well. We can't just ignore any, like, like as much as we want to try to find the spiritual upside in all of this, we got to look at the, rea- the harsh, painful reality in which we live.
1: Before he wrote Deuteronomy, he also remembered Joseph when he wrote in Genesis chapter 45 of Joseph, when he said this to his brothers, he said, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Well, I circled that word. God sent me. Now, I thought it was the brothers that sold Joseph into slavery. I thought it was I thought it was uh, these evil men that, that took Joseph down to Egypt and sold him. I thought it was all the working of the devil. Well, Joseph brought that up in Genesis 50. He said, he said to them, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. You see, Joseph had the right understanding of adversity. He understood that God had a few delivery boys working for him. God had a few tools and instruments in his hand. But in the end, he saw his adversity from God's viewpoint. To where he bypassed the tools, he bypassed the delivery boy and just flat out said, God sent me. God sent me. In fact, he said in Genesis 50 and 19, Do not be afraid, for I am in God's place. God.
0: Now, I, I want to make sure it's 1000% crystal clear. I believe everything he's saying. God is in charge. I am 1000% in agreement with it. God is sovereign. He's in charge. I just always acknowledge all of the philosophical problems that arises from said truth and not be willing to push those under, sweep them under the rug and just try to give us me a Christian bumper sticker solution to make me feel better. It's massively philosophically troubling. We have to acknowledge that. Now, I'm also baffled, this is supposed to be a sermon on Deuteronomy chapter 8. I am somewhat baffled by that, but that's okay, that's okay. He's at least acknowledging. I'm assuming he's going to come to Deuteronomy 8 for the supposed answer, all right? So, we'll see here.
1: God sent me to God's place because he meant it for good. Ladies and gentlemen, God does not play nor pull pranks with His children. You can write it down. He's not playing with you and pulling pranks with you. God's not picking on you. God's not like some cat plays around with a mouse to have a little fun at the other's expense. When adversity comes into your life, there is a divine purpose for it. When adversity strikes your life, when adversity oppresses your life, you can be sure that what you have come to face is a divine appointment. And God means it for good. When He works, He works with a purpose. When He allows something, He allows it for a purpose. When He permits something, He permits it for a purpose. Let me share with you another truth. That I've learned about adversity.
0: I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask a very provoking question here, right? Or I think it's thought provoking. Maybe you won't. I think provoking. Like, this may provoke some of you. I want it to be thought provoking. I want it to provoke thoughts. I don't want it to provoke you that you're like, I'm, t- I'm gonna email him right now and tell him he's a piece of trash, okay? You may do that anyway, but I, I just, I just wanna ask a deep, 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 really philosophical question. When it comes to adversity, it comes to pain, it comes to suffering that you've encountered in your life or you're encountering right now. Honestly, what brings you more comfort? Suffering and adversity that has a divine purpose behind it or a suffering that has no purpose? Does a purposeful adversity and suffering placed in your life given to you by a divine being... Do you find comfort in that? Or would you find more comfort in it's purposeless? There is no purpose. Which, which, honestly, which brings you more comfort? I, I really hope, was hoping we'd get more into Deuteronomy chapter 8 here, okay? But that's why I love doing these sermon reviews because I never know what's going to happen, right? Like, I was hoping Deuteronomy 8, clearly he's got a, he wants to talk about suffering. He wants to talk about adversity. Deuteronomy 8 seems to be more of a launching pad. I'm assuming he's going to circle back to it to say Deuteronomy chapter 8 is going to teach us all the good things that come from it. Just remember, the people who suffer the adversity in Deuteronomy 8 are the people who are going to fail. God over and over and over again once they get into the promised land. So you can say, I don't know how good that, I don't know how much good came from said adversity since Israel's going to end up, I don't know, sinning in every way known possible, but I divert, I, I, I digress. All right. But I want, I really want you to think about that pain and suffering, wait, It's, hey, I got some good news. There's a divine purpose behind it. Oh, thank you so much. That makes it all better. That makes it all better. Oh, wait, I got some bad news. What? There is no purpose. There is no rhyme. There is no reason to your suffering. Come on, which one brings you more comfort? Which one brings you more comfort? Now, the Christian answer is going to be, well, obviously the one with the divine purpose because all things work together for good and God has a purpose in it. It makes me feel so much better. And an atheist is going to be like, well, purposelessness of suffering is, is, makes more sense. It brings me more comfort. But honestly, though deep down, come on, come on. Not a church answer. Nobody, friend. look, tell me. Nobody in church will ever find out. I won't tell anyone in church. Come on, come on. You can whisper it to me. Come on. Which one? Which one? Come on. Shh. We won't tell anybody. You can email me. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Use a fake email. Come on. Which one? Which one?
1: God allows adversity in a person's life to do basically two things. He allows adversity in your life and in my life to correct us from our sin and to enlarge our capacity to trust Him. Every
0: So God brings suffering into your life to correct sin... And enlarge your capacity to trust him. Now, you got to really think about this. you got to really think about this. A woman is raped. Oh, hey, God was correcting the sin in your life and enlarging your capacity to trust in him. Hey, 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 you're good good news. I know you were raped. I know you were kidnapped. Hey, 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 hey. I know you were molested. I know you were beaten. I know you were tortured. I know I know you were suffering from cancer. I know I know your child just died because of a drunk driver. I know whatever the case. I know you were just paralyzed. I know you were blind. Whatever the horrible thing is. Hey, hey, I got some good news. I got some good news. Hey, hey, there's a purpose behind your suffering. Oh well, praise God. I thought there was no purpose in this. What's the purpose? To correct sin in your life. Wait, wait, what, what, what? wait, wait a minute. What, what, what? So I was raped because God needed to correct sin in my life? Well, okay, maybe it wasn't that. He did so to enlarge your capacity to trust him because nothing teaches you how to trust God more than being raped. Nothing will teach you how to trust God more than being molested. Nothing will teach you how to trust God more than starving to death. Oh, it got quiet. It got real quiet. Now, see, there's going to be some Christians bowing up right now. They're going to get mad at me. Look, I when I point these things out, I'm not pointing them out as an adversary. I believe in the sovereignty of God. One, I mean, I'm... I'm reformed in my theology, right? I mean, I believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation and election. I, I believe in God that all things work according to his good counsel and will. I believe scripture teaches that. I don't believe it because I find comfort in it. I believe it because I believe the scriptures declare it to be true and I believe the scriptures to be the word of God. But at the same time, I'm not gonna pretend that, ooh, that makes everything better, guys. woo life is so much better now. I'm left with some serious, 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 serious questions because I've suffered some serious adversity in my life. Hey, that was to correct sin in my life and to enlarge my capacity to trust in God. So Job suffered, his kids died to correct sin in Job's life. Oh, oh, oh no. Job's kids died so that Job's would Job would have a better capacity to trust in God. That, that is hard for me to comprehend.
1: Every time adversity comes into our life, God can use it to either or both correct us from our sin and to enlarge us in our capacity to trust Him. And so if you ever come to understand that, friend, you will find out that adversity can be your best friend. Can I get an amen? I know this flies in the face of everything that's being preached in our postmodern humanistic philosophies, churches, and colleges, and
0: now, for, make sure I, I want to, again, make it crystal clear because someone's going to get mad at me. I agree with him that God is sovereign, that God is in charge. I don't know if I completely agree that the only two reasons God would do it is to correct sin in your life or enlarge your capacity to trust him. And maybe he has scriptural grounds for that reason. And then maybe I will have to acknowledge that. I would just say that if you say that, you do have to understand what you are claiming. And that's some hard things to say when you're dealing with some real when you're dealing with real suffering. You can say it behind a pulpit in a church. Say it when you're looking at someone who's just been, you know, suffering the way that they have suffered. I think I think it's gonna have a profound impact on how you, you see it. All right, but let let's continue.
1: Much of which is turned into uh, psychology courses for people on how to have bigger self esteem how to solve all their little problems. Listen, friend, I have come to realize that the biggest problem in my life is not the devil. The biggest problem in my life is not Satan. The biggest problem in my life is God Himself.
0: Wow, that's a that's a provoking statement. You talk about me. I I was afraid I was going to provoke provoke people. That's I mean, look, I look, I give him credit here because he's he's not allowing us to get God off the hook. The biggest problem in my life is God himself. I mean, that's some powerful, like, uh, like, I I don't want you to think that I'm having massive disagreements here. I'm just trying to say, okay, you can say this. We got to think of the implications. But I love that because in a roundabout way, the biggest problem in my life is God. I know that, (laughs) someone said that's a bold statement. But I mean, if you think about it, look, every, like, if every adversity God controls, well, then God is the biggest issue. The fact that I still have a sinful nature, but it's God. Any temptation that comes into my life, God allows it. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, that, it is a bold, provoking, shocking statement that some people would immediately, (laughs) immediately push back on. But I do love the fact that he's like, look, no. God is the one in charge. Don't blame anybody else. Don't let God off the hook. I, I, I just, I just, I just think that once, we, once we acknowledge this, we have to deal with all of the implications of it.
1: And God's going to make sure He fixes that problem.
0: Okay, there was a long pause there. There was a long pause there. I love that. I love that long pause. That's where you just said something as a preacher and you're looking out at the congregation and you just went, oh, snap. Okay, you can just see the looks on people's faces. Oh, Oh, man, there's nothing. Sometimes there's nothing worse than when you're preaching and you can immediately tell when you've ticked someone off. It is so hard to just not let it impact your sermon, right? Because you can just, because sometimes you'll immediately see them give you a look and then immediately they're over, they're back there doing this. They're back here doing this. They're they're looking for cross references. They're, they're gonna find a scripture that's gonna prove you wrong. Right. And I, it drives me crazy when I see that. I don't know why people in the congregation does not understand that. Because I just want to say, oh, okay, give me the verse that's gonna prove me wrong because you're right. I probably never read it, probably never heard of it before. It, it's so it's sometimes it's so irritating. It's like, why don't just listen to the sermon and then afterwards don't don't make a show of it there, but You could hear the silence there. And then he's like, but God's going to fix the problem. So God is the biggest problem, but God's going to fix the problem. Meaning God's the biggest problem because he brings all of this adversity, but God's going to dun, 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 dun. He's going to fix it. Is he going to fix it though? How is he going to, how is he going to fix it? Let's see what he says here. Let's see what he says here.
1: And when he fixes that problem, I don't have any problems. Adversity becomes my friend.
0: So when God fixes it, adversity becomes my friend. Now see, now this is where I have, I understand when Christians go down this path, they always have to find a way to start making it. They got to turn it into something positive. I understand that. But you got to hear what you're saying. Hey, God is the one who causes it. It's all him. Hey guys, but listen, God's going to fix it. And once he fixes it, you're not going to have any more problems because now adversity is going to be your friend. You're being raped. Adversity is your friend. You're being molested. Adversity is your friend. You're dying of cancer. Adversity is your friend. You're starving to death. Adversity is your friend. You're being tied up and beaten. Adversity is your friend. I don't know if that just makes all my problems go away.
1: Becomes my friend. Everything negative that comes in my life can be a positive because I realize it's all to make me right with God.
0: Oh, oh my goodness. Every suffering that comes into my life is to make me right with God. Wow. Okay. Number one, I am not made right with God by being tortured, beaten, and suffering. I am made right with God by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now you may say that suffering can bring, can, can purify and can do things. But I look, no matter how much suffering comes into my life, I will never be right with God because I act better because God smacked me across the face 50 times with suffering. Hey, come on, come on. I'll keep smacking you until you're right with me. I'll keep smacking you until you're right with me. I'll keep smacking you. No, that, no. Because no matter how much he smacks me, no matter how much suffering comes into my life, no matter how much adversity, no matter how much I suffer, I'm never going to be right in his eyes based off what I do. I am made right with God by an imputed righteousness and the blood of Jesus Christ. Wow, that, whoo, man, that just took a hard turn into, I don't know where that just went. No, we are never made right with God by suffering, by adversity. We may be purified. You may say it it purifies and it removes. I got no problem saying there's spiritual benefit that may flow from it. But me being made right with my right standing with God has zero to do with how I live. My right standing with God has everything to do with an imputed righteousness. Now, you may say my fellowship with God, my closeness with God, my spiritual growth, my my spirituality. Yeah, by all means, we could get in discussion about that. But being right with God, the only thing that makes me right with God, the only thing is the finished work of Jesus Christ.
1: Well, let's look at the text so I can start preaching. All right.
0: All right, we'll stop right there. He's just now getting to Deuteronomy chapter eight and we're at 79 minutes. I didn't even realize it was 79 minutes. I felt like we've only been doing this for like about 15 minutes. Now I don't know where the sermon stopped. All right. I I know where what he just said. Let's get to the text. Let's see. I'm going to see. I'm going to mess this up. Yeah, I don't know where the sermon is. Uh, on my timer, it's zero 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 zero. On my timer and my software, the sermon has ended. There's no more sermon, but there's more sermon because it's it stopped doing that. Like, yeah, I don't know where I don't know where the sermon is. That is weird. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit play here for a second. Amen. Yeah, now it just started over, so I don't know exactly where he stopped that. Let me see if I can find it. Let's see if we can find it. Let's see if we can.
1: Birds cannot fly. Bread in the wilderness. One of the most basic and universal forms of human need. Often. The biggest sin. What's going to come out of it? That's what he said in verses one through six. Humble. To test them. University. To teach them lessons. Even in the worst valley you walk through, God can be there. I'm spoken for, amen, as it was sung today. God is in verse number 2. And I read... And God's going to make sure He fixes that problem.
0: Sorry about that. I wanted to get a place where I knew where we were in case we want to finish this review. We stopped at the 29 minute, 29 minute, 34 second mark. 29 minute, 34 second mark. Okay, good. I apologize. It was weird. My timer said, we're done. We're done. And so then I tried to back it up. And then when I hit play, it started over. It was weird because I don't even know how long we were gone into it. And it told me that we were right. I thought the sermon got messed up, but it it was so it was weird. Wow. I don't even know what to say there. I don't know what to say there. That is a horrible thing to say to someone. Hey, you're, you're suffering because God's trying to make you right with him. Like God can't make me right with him any other way. And I'm basically beating me to death. I mean, there's some serious uh, issues there. All right, but I'm going to stop. All right, I'm going to stop there. All right. Wow. I'd love to get your thoughts on all of that. News. If I hate these, like I kind of feel like I have to come to a a kind of a bring it to a like a quick stop. But I mean, we're at 81 minutes, so I I I, I have to kind of wrap it up now. So wow! If you missed all of that, if you were listening to us on Sermons 2.0, I'm going to upload this in just a couple of seconds. It'll be available. Look for Theology Central. Download the Church One app. That's the best way to keep up with all of our content because we're on the air all the time and uh, we're always adding new content. But um, we'll get this uploaded because I think you may want walk through all of that um, I this did not help me at all for my Deuteronomy 8 prep for tomorrow so um, yeah this was uh this was shocking to hear it was it was shockingly refreshing that he, he he put God like God's responsible but it was shockingly disturbing because he somehow seems to think that that makes it all better and then it was horribly shocking. To basically say, the reason you're suffering horribly is because God's trying to make you right with him. Well, I'm right with him and because of the finished work of Christ. Yeah, that, 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 it, that's where it took a weird left turn. And then immediately he's like, now let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. So he, he spent 30, oh, oh, basically 30 minutes. That was just all intro and nothing to do with Deuteronomy 8. But I think he believes Deuteronomy 8 is going to provide some kind of answer, I guess. I don't know. So we will, we may have to, uh, we may have to, we, I think we'll have to finish this review. Obviously not today, uh, but, um, maybe, maybe tomorrow, maybe, uh, tomorrow night, maybe Monday. I don't know. Just someone remind me we have to finish that review. We have to finish that review. Okay. We have to finish that review. All right. And this is all a part of our seven week series in the study of temptation for those who are listening. Um, you can go back and listen to the whole series. This is part nine. Um, this is the first time we've done a sermon review in this series so far. We've done, so I've given you homework, assignments, because this is the Bible study exercise podcast series where I try to get you involved in study. And here we just heard how, and Deuteronomy chapter eight was one of the texts before this week in our study. And uh, so I'll be working on it tomorrow and then we'll we'll get back to this review, right? So, Wow. I, I don't have any words for that. All right. Thanks for listening. You can email me newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Everyone have a wonderful Saturday evening and hopefully you'll be in a Bible believing church tomorrow. And if you can't find one, there's plenty of things to listen to online. Find something that is spiritually satisfying, spiritually nourishing and something that will build you up and get you into the word of God. Thank you for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.